Welcome to another episode of the Vikingology Podcast. The art and science of the Viking Age. And today we have a really cool guest who's for once not that far away from us. Woohoo! Time zone! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> we're usually interviewing people at like 7 30 in the morning and like oh, they're yes. like nine hours away somewhere in europe but uh yeah and we also have so dr matthias nordvig of the university of colorado at boulder who is an expert in norse mythology and the nordic story world and folklore from scandinavia and the viking age but also before a little bit right um and ah, oh, th this is the second podcast in a row where we've now had a repeat, repeat guest because we talked to Matthias, or I did. You were you were having some health issues, CJ. Remember last it was last summer, I think. Um, yeah, that pesky smoke. Wait, which one was it? I, there was I think the, it was like the issue with your heart. Yeah, yeah. The, we had the wildfire smoke aggravates my congenital heart condition, and so I went oh. and got checked out. And I was they're they like, you're fine. It's just it feels scary. Yeah. Right. Mm. So they hooked me up for a month to a little heart monitor. And then they're like, yeah, I mean, your heart's doing some funny stuff, but it's not dangerous. Uh, <laughs> well, but, that's good uh, to know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the smoke's gone and I don't feel anything. And then so now I'm already game planning. Where where should I go when the smoke comes back in August? And so I was asking my wife, where, where should we go? So I've been shopping for like resorts in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there in August. You can come stay with me. <laughs> there we go. I just need three, four weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, you, and isn't you, might, it a... go ahead. you might have a volcano so, uh, <laughs> creating the same problems. Yeah, wow. yeah. Actually, that was um, something, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last podcast. I think I did anyway. Um, that uh, they're, my friends in Iceland are telling me now that they are, I guess it would be the government is thinking about buying up Grindavik and then basically just making a ghost town out of it because they're, they're just like, okay, this thing has woken up again after 800 years and we have no idea how this is going to go for how long. So we just need to evacuate this entire place for good, which is strange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, so our last podcast with you, though, we talked about, and people can check it out on our Substack and Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but it's called Viking Philosophy or Philosophy 101, Viking 101. And um, that was the first thing I asked you about. I don't know if you remember, because you've written a book, actually, about volcanoes and mm -hmm. And, and all of this. And so anyway, and then also some people will maybe recognize you from your, your sometimes co-host of uh, the Nordic Mythology podcast, but then you also have your own new side hustle that, which is really interesting. So you're the host of the Sacred Flame, which, um, you know, so we can talk a little bit about that too, because it takes things kind of in a really interesting direction, I think. But um, I mean, we wanted to talk to you too, because Right. Uh, yeah. We're, we're going to do this again. We, we This has been a trend. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> that was a little gift that was waiting for CJ when he got back from France. It, it was nice. lovely. Thank you. And then <laughs> yeah. I read it like that that night or actually, excuse me, that early morning when I woke up at 2.30 in the morning and I was like, I can't go back to sleep. Well, let's read the Voluspa. <laughs> that's not to say that the book will put you to sleep. <laughs> oh, no, it's kept me awake. It kept my, I, mean, I was yeah. awake. Yeah, <laughs> but so if we spot, uh, and then you have a subtitle, "The Vision of the Witch," which I asked you about, right? Because sometimes yeah. people might see it as the uh, what the 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 seeress or the prophet, mm -hmm. the prophetess, 
Um, but this is a poem. And then you've also got some other work that you're you're doing on rune poems. And so we can talk about that, which I noticed the I think the um the publisher said something on Instagram, like they're sold out or something. And so Oh yeah, they, they sell out in about a month. Yeah, <laughs> you good for you. Yeah, that's that's awesome for you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'm not complaining at all. Yeah, exactly. So um so yeah, I mean, let's just start with like sort of tell us what you know for people who don't know. Tell us what Belief Spot is and and what you've what you've done here with this new translation. Yeah, so Belief uh, Spot is a poem from uh, multiple uh, medieval uh, manuscripts. Actually, we we have um, three extant versions of it, but the primary one is the Codex Regius. So that would be what people generally refer to as the poetic Edda. Um, these uh, poems that that uh, talk about the Nordic gods and some of them might be, like Verlusbau, might be as old as like the late Viking age, the, the late period of, uh, of paganism actually. So I think most scholars agree that Verdusbau is probably from the late 900s or early thousands. So that would put it in the Viking Age, right? Um, it was composed, presumably composed orally, and then uh, memorized and repeated and reused um, time and time again until it was written down in the 1200s, um, maybe in the there's a possibility that it might have been written down in a manuscript that is now lost sometime in the last half of the 1100s, but we have the first extant written versions of it in the 1200s. Snorri Sturluson quotes from it extensively when he gives us his rendition of Nordic mythology in his book Etta in 1220, and then we have the Codex Regius that's a little younger than that. 1270. And then we have also the Hoegsbok version from the early 1300s. And they all differ a little bit. Like the Hoegsbok version is you know, the one that has like a, what seems to be a very Christian stanza at the end where this, the Inriki, which can be translated to the king, uh, comes at the end of Ragnarok and sorts everything out. Um, the other versions don't seem to have that and so, so it's a you know when you work with this type of literature, there, there's always a, a a lot of choices that have to be made in terms of like how do you want to represent it, um, how how are you translating different words? Um, there are you know words in there in a poem like this that don't exist in other material, uh, so sometimes we have to guess <laughs> like what what does this word actually mean and that that's where context comes into it and so on so you know it's it's a it's a dirty business to uh, to translate medieval literature <laughs> but you're translating from the old norse or from old icelandic or what um yeah so uh well um old i would say that old norse and old icelandic are the same thing um with a little bit of variation old norse is uh traditionally what scholarship um uh, that that term has been used in scholarship to to uh, talk about the west nordic um, uh, languages, right? So that would include uh, the languages spoken on the Norwegian uh, West Coast um, and, and in most of Norway and even uh, certain parts of uh, Northern Sweden, right? Um, it's a linguistic development that happens in the 1100s. Um, 
so uh but you know making these cuts between like oh now now they're speaking west nordic or east nordic and so on it's also incredibly problematic when it comes down to it um but uh, but yeah this it's written in iceland so you know i would call it old icelandic essentially um but scholarship tends to call that language that's spoken and written in the 1200s old norse as well um so, but it's not that the it's not the same as that common Scandinavian language that is spoken prior to the 1100s. Before you start seeing split offs between East and, and West and so on, mm-hmm. um, there there are s- minor differences. They're just not you know that pronounced. That was a very technical description. <laughs> of I do have a question, and and, and uh, it's it's basically how how do we know that. Old Norse is different than what would have been spoken before. If because my understanding is there's not a lot written. There's not a lot. So I mean, there's nobody. We can't go back in time and and speak with them to understand the variations in the language. So what, where's where's the evidence or the breadcrumb trail that would lead us to think? So we have Old Norse that emerges in the you know the late Viking Age, and but it's different than what might have been spoken in the early Viking Age. I mean, where's where? How do we come to that conclusion? Uh, there are two primary sources for that. We have the runic uh, inscriptions from you know all of Scandinavia, um, the earliest ones, uh, as we found out not so long ago with the Svingerud uh, stone from Norway, go all the way back to around the year zero. Um, and and then, of course, we have uh, Icelandic scholars in the 11, 1100s to uh, 1300s who are writing uh, treatises on languages, and they are they're pointing out differences between uh, you know what is spoken in Iceland and what is spoken in, for instance, the Danish area. Um, when we go back to eight nine hundreds, it seems like, and we know this from for instance from Icelandic uh, um, scholars uh, like uh, uh, Oliver Thorthason, um uh, who's writing in the middle of the 1200s, um, they say that, that the language back then was called the Danish tongue, Dönsk Tunga. Um, and they they juxtapose that with um, linguistic changes that have happened in the Icelandic languages. It's basically saying, we can see that there's a difference here and a difference there. Then, of course, if we uh, go and take a look at a, a runestone that's carved in the 12, uh, sorry, not the 1200s, the 800s in, in the Danish area, the Swedish area, the Norwegian area, we can also see minor differences, um, like grammatical changes that have happened, r- vocabulary that has changed and so on. But the thing is, the thing is too that, you know, all of these like di- ways of uh, defining languages like this, um, are mostly just important to uh, scholars that are really uh, intent on identifying, say, for instance, the Icelandic language of the uh, 1200s or the Norwegian language of the 1200s. Um, that's a little jab to my colleagues in, uh, <laughs> in Norway and Iceland. But also, I wonder how much of, of that, because the evidence must be pretty scant, right? Like, again, there's just a couple of examples here and there. So I wonder how much of it is is a broad trend for people at the time in this area spoke the language differently in these ways, and how much of it might actually just be individual variation. Like, you know how today 
individuals within the same population will have different vernaculars based on experience, education, et cetera. So I wonder how, mu how much of that is in play too, where we're just seeing individual differences that are affect that might be clouding our worldview. I mean, I, it just seems to me that it would be a, a field of study that would be fraught with danger for making, you know, uh, wrong supposition. You know what I mean? Like just kind of looking at it from the different angles. Yeah, I, I mean, to an extent, um, it, but we can we can also so so you know we're getting into like very technical details here, but but like you know in Scandinavia, um, in in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, for instance, we talk about rune Norwegian, rune Danish, and rune Swedish, um, the languages that are that that we can read on those rune stones. Um, and and that's you know that's also a way of talking about uh, what type of language that we're seeing in what period. And let's also keep in mind that sometimes uh, you know dating a runestone can also be quite difficult. And it's you know usually based on contextual dating, usually based on the language and the style of the runes and the art on the runestone and so on. And so there's a bunch of <laughs> you know uh, uh, factors in there that that can also you know. They complicate things a little bit. <laughs> I mean that, that that's the whole that's our whole field, right? That that there's a lot of you know suppositions going into it in general, um, because we don't have accurate tools, right? We we have we have good tools, but not always accurate tools to date and define. It's a very that's a very chicken and egg conundrum too that you could run into if you're trying. So if you're using contextual clues to date the runestone but you're using the runestone to inform you about the contextual clues <laughs> yeah <laughs> see that's why I, that's why i did old norse mythology instead of <laughs> instead of like runology <laughs> i was oh, like I'll, I'll leave that mess to you guys <laughs> well so tell us like what's what is the uh what is the text of the poem what does the poem say well, so the the poem is a um, a description of the the like, the beginning of the world and then a process to the end of the world, right? This is our primary source to Ragnarök, the uh, the apocalypse, right? And about uh, what is it? Nearly two thirds of the poem is actually about the Viking apocalypse more than anything else. And that, of course, gives us some clues, I would say, to the role that this poem has played if it was composed in the late 900s or early thousands. Um, we keep in mind that this is the period where uh, conversion to Christianity is ramping up all across the north. Denmark has converted in the 960s in a very official way with, you know, Harold Bluetooth proclaiming this on a runestone. Um, a runestone that, by the way, in its sort of in its basic features and how the runes are placed and all that stuff, very much indicates that um, they knew books, right? Yeah. Um, right. So, 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 so he's telling us the book has now come to Scandinavia, essentially. Um, and um, uh, uh, then you have Iceland that's formally converting in the year thousand or nine ninety nine. Um, and you have Norway that's converting in 995, roughly. And again, when you say Norway converting in 995, you have to then, you know, put it, 
add some equations of, well, maybe the northern regions haven't, and maybe there are some eastern regions that haven't, but but sort of like the center of the Norwegian kingdom at the time has. Um, Sweden is much later, uh, 1080s, um, maybe even as late as the early 1100s, again, depending on regions. But this is like the period where, you know, Christian uh, beliefs, religion, and culture is is taking root in Scandinavia. And that that is very obvious from this poem as well. Um, scholarship tends to agree that ideas of sort of like, you know, apocalyptic visions and so on were present in Nordic culture before the conversion uh, to Christianity. So there is an element of eschatology in 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 this uh, belief system and culture um but you know you can always be questions like how how big of a role does that actually play in in the stories that everybody's telling in the 800s or the 700s or the 500s for that matter um what is obviously the case is that that becomes a big feature of this poem right so it might have something to do with christianity and its presence in uh, in scandinavia um in, in this period. Um, aside from that, there are some very interesting little details happening in the, the, the beginning of the poem, telling us about the creation. We, we get a sense of uh, some very old ideas. Um, and when we talk creation stories in, in the Nordic story world, uh, we have to be mindful of the fact that when Snorri Sturluson is writing his creation story, he's mixing in a lot of learned knowledge that comes from uh, classical literature and the Mediterranean. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of Platonic philosophy in there, actually. Um, people tend to ignore that because they think fire and ice sounds incredibly cool when it comes to Vikings. Like, yeah, he got that from Plato. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it fits so well with Iceland that has like right. volcanoes and right? it's like sure yeah but <laughs> um so so but he he gives us that story of like the world being created from this primordial giant called Emir and the image of that primordial giant is very faint in the creation story in Verlusbaug that he's otherwise using um it shows up in other poetry other Eric poetry um, but Emir is mentioned, um, at least in the Codex Regius version of the poem, actually in the, 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 the version that Snurri quotes in 1220, um, it's, he very distinctly says that there was nothing in the beginning of time, which I find quite interesting, uh, because then he's also aligning with a, a, a theological discourse in the 1200s, that's present all over Europe. What was there in the beginning of time when God created everything? Um, uh, so, so, so there, are, there's a bunch of things happening um, between that poem and what Snorri Sturluson is doing. But the interesting thing is that the primordial giant, like from from whom the world is created, is a very old image. This is something that we find across the globe in different iterations and in different forms um what we also see in a circumpolar area from scandinavia all the way uh, to north america um is the idea that you know the, the world was created from a primordial sea where there's some animal that goes into the uh, uh 
the 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 ocean and brings up sludge and then places that like mud and, and all all kinds of sediments from the bottom uh, places that on something and then creates the world and hence the, the you know indigenous term turtle island for and uh, for america right um those stories also exist in siberia and there are also versions of them in the baltic uh, finnic area uh, of scandinavia and it also looks like that there is a hint of that in the creation myth in in Virlspell because we have this reference to the sons of Bor that are like racing the ground. And where are they racing it from? Is it the, a primordial ocean or what is happening here? So, so there might be two references in the creation here, one to the primordial giant and one to this you know, uh, trope of racing it from, from the primordial sea. And if you go to the Kalevala, the Finnish mythology, you will see that, you know, these things also converge there um, with a some kind of primordial giant or female who becomes the earth as well, and then the ocean. So, so there's, there's all of these interesting uh, overlaps and little hints um, in, in, in this story world that, that can take us very deep into um, an a ancient distant past. Where things might have looked very different from um, from that surface layer that Snorri Sturluson gives us when he's interpreting everything with his very learned goggles in the 1200s. Yeah. So the uh, what you're talking about with the conversion um, period with this, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting because that kind of apocalyptic thinking, you know, you know, that was been going on with Christian Europeans you know, specifically when you get to those nice round numbers, like the year 1000 or the year 15, it's like, ah, the second coming or whatever, you know, something, something's going to happen kind of thing. But um, it's, you know, so actually a couple of things. So I know you've talked in other places before about uh, the differences in the interpretation of the word Ragnarok and, you know, what that actually could represent. But um, so I want to have you address that, but then also this idea potentially that, that that's what the since everybody sort of modern pop culture blah, Ragnarok the end boom lights out fade to black whatever that um, but no there's this thing that comes after and so could it potentially be sort of the age you know the end of one age of the gods i.e. the pagan world and then the rebirth of a new age of God i.e. Mm. one Christian God that's actually being relayed here do you know what I mean Yeah. Um, let's keep in mind that Verlospau is like the most popular poem of all of this material. This is the, the the poem that most scholars have researched. Like you can find so much material on it, right? You can find so many theories as well. Um, so there's a couple of things to consider, and uh, I want to highlight uh, um, John McKinnell's uh, uh, article Verlospau and the Feast of Easter, where he's theorizing how elements of uh, Christian mythology actually enter this poem. Uh, because there are some uh, stances, some lines in certain stances in, in Verlospau that align very well with apocalyptic uh, vision uh, literature, Christian vision literature in, in the English area, and, and also, you know, draws lines all the way into the Gospel of John. Um, so there's something going on there. His theory is that uh, we're actually dealing with syncretism. We're dealing with somebody who uh, uh, was present 
who has who had been present for uh, those parts of the Easter sermons where uh, non-Christians are allowed to be present in church, which I'm sure would have been a common phenomenon in like from the maybe the late 800s and onwards, right? When you're talking Scandinavia and interactions between Scandinavians and and peoples in the British Isles. Um, so so there's there, there might be some influence there from from Christian eschatology. But uh, aside from that, um, well, the the poem, the way that it's uh, composed, could be hinting at at this notion of the end of 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 a certain type of society um it could be considered a warning that if we go down this route <laughs> then we uh, this is going to end but it's important to consider too that there are some very specific and important components uh that lead to the end in 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 sort of like the, 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 the process of history here, uh, the killing of brothers between uh, a, a, the killing of a brother by another brother is, you know, at the center of all of this. This is what leads to Ragnarok. Um, and if we consider everything we know about medieval Icelandic society, right, we, we know that um, all the sagas pretty much, they talk about <laughs> how blood feud is going to, you know, destroy everything. Um, and this seems to be a theme in this poem as well, because what is the problem here? Well, when a brother kills a brother, then you have a blood feud within the family, and that means that the family is going to destroy itself eventually, right? You just have this cycle of revenge. The theme of the problem of the cycles of revenge, the problem of the feud, is very present in Scandinavian uh, literature, um, and poetry and uh, folk songs uh, in the medieval period, right? That's because there is a push sometimes from central authorities, kings are making laws against feuding, um, but also probably in a more broader cultural sense of push to push away from the blood feud, right? What was the blood feud? Well, it was the way to maintain equilibrium in society is if if you transgress against my family then my family will will retaliate right um that's 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 what you got when you don't have a police right sure. and a central authority uh, uh organizing laws and and all of those uh aspects of like uh, keeping people in check so 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 there's there's an uh, um, moral component to 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 this poem um that is that is like pointing at that as as a as a central problem in in society and once that happens then well society will break down so to to answer your question about Ragnarok, um so there are two forms in the literature um we have a the the, the word spelled a r g n a R O with a little uh, hook under it, under it, uh, and then K. Um, and if I remember my uh, old Norse pronunciation correctly, it's supposed to be pronounced Ragnarok. And then you have um, the version that Snorri Sturluson employs in Etta, which is spelled 
A-R-G-N-A-R-E. So that's the uh, O with the dots over it. And then K-K-R, Ragnarökkur. Um, and that one means uh, exactly the way that <laughs> it's translated in Wagner's uh, Wagner-esque uh, language, right? Götterdämmerung. <laughs> the <laughs> the darkness of the gods, right? So Snorri Sturluson makes a choice when he spells Ragnarök. He talks about it as like the darkness of the gods. Now the question is though, what does Ragnarök mean? And this is where we need to get into like etymological uh, uh, nitty gritty details, um, uh, theorizing and, and so on. Um, but one one translation uh, uh, that I like uh, because it makes a lot more sense than sort of like this this idea that you know you had a you had a religious tradition, a cultural tradition that that basically just saw itself as something that's going to end, right? Because that's what we get otherwise from this material. Um, is is the translation of the word as like that which you know, going to be going a little bit beyond what the word can can sort of carry, but that which the gods uh, rule over or, or are in charge of, right? So Ragnarok as, as essentially like a, 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 a word that means what the, the gods encompass, what they, what they are rulers of, right? Um, which is a very different understanding of, of the word, right? That might be an older form of the word. Um, so those are some theories that uh, uh, that should be considered when you know you're translating this material when you're working with this material. Um, unless you want to stay at like the surface level of just um, I have a medieval text and now I'm going to translate one to one, one to one, one to one um, of uh, and then I'm going to you know run into a roadblock when there's a word that I can't actually translate <laughs> without adding context. <laughs> So I've, I've got a kind of a heady question that's coming out of this because you, you evoked a couple of things that I find interesting in terms of, you know, what is what does this myth mean? And so you talked about the blood feuds, so a couple of external processes, right, that this could be attached to. I'll ask the question and then I'll I'll define kind of what I mean by it so that it kind of helps with your answer. But it's have you considered have you considered that the meaning may not be an external process, but rather uh, a lesson for an internal process. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so if you look at, say, um, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, for example, he looks at world mythologies all over the place and finds a common thread, only to realize through his study of Jungian psychology that this is actually a roadmap. It's a roadmap to help us through the process of change, right? And so we all identify with the Hero's Journey on an art you know it's it's an archetypal story meaning we all identify with it on a deep level because in one way or another we are living it in our daily lives anytime there's a challenge we have to overcome anytime we set out on a new kind of a growth pattern right um and so i'm just wondering if 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 ragnarok really is you know could it be rather than attached to an external process be attached to an internal process so for example if i'm in a society and we know that teenagers are are tumultuous and they can act rashly their decision making part of the brain is just not fully developed and so you could almost see 
the old gods who are you know a little bit loose sexually a little bit violent <laughs> you know uh and then like the fratricide piece that you're talking about you know uh if you commit this sin then it will usher about the end of the world but perhaps that just means the death and rebirth of of the person internally kind of like a uh, an ego kind of reset it's basically like what if it was more of a coming of age story to help young people become adults and go through that process of change where there is a metaphysical death and rebirth uh versus uh versus the external stuff i hope that made sense but anyway have you considered the internal process versus the the external process as far as the meaning of the of the um, yeah so there's a couple of things to say to that um one i mean you can always use stories uh, uh to relate to as like an internal process right I mean, and that's what we do when we read um that's the, i think that's what most people find uh interesting about reading i, I am i'm reading a, a fantasy novel uh, about some dragon tamer on a different planet or something like that but you know then you know this dragon tamer goes to for instance you know the transformation from child to teen to adult and so on and that's relatable to me we can always use stories like that um i uh, will have to say that i'm not a fan of joseph campbell nor am i a fan of Jung or or the psychologized interpretation of mythology um for a number of reasons, uh, Campbell uh, to me is problematic because uh, this is a structuralist approach to mythology where we overlook quite often. That's what we do when we do structuralist interpretations. We overlook a lot of components in order to make them fit. A great example of that when it comes to Nordic mythology is Georges Dumézil, who created the tripartite theory of uh, like the roles of the gods. Like Odin is like warrior priest, and Thor is uh, is uh, is like you know the warrior protector, and Freyr is uh, fertility god, and so on. It's like yeah, sure, cool. But what about all of those references in the material that uh, hint at Freyr's role in war, right? So it's like already there, his structuralism breaks down. Um, there might be some, you know, useful, there are some useful aspects to structuralism in different ways, but it's usually um, quite reductive, right? So what it does is that it reduces reality to to a scheme, to a to a um, Excel spreadsheet. And, and this is where uh, I find it problematic to, uh, to use that for mythology, right? Because mythology... Uh, and that's also a word that I don't like <laughs> um, because that is it cramps, you know, what was once a living story world that was used by people for so many different things in in, in their lives, right? Crams it into um, a, a genre and category that's right next to fantasy in our modern ways of thinking about genres, right? Um it's it it's problematic to 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 take mythology and reduce it that way because uh, as i just said it it this these these types of stories have been used by people for all kinds of things right and with with that way of thinking we also end up typically in, in placing the narratives and the information in the narratives on a, on a hierarchical ladder between serious and unserious. So for instance, great example, 
um in Snow Sturdison's Edda he he tells us that you <laughs> you have to cut your fingernails because if you die with long fingernails then you're gonna end up adding to the ship of the dead like Nalfar that would bring all the demons uh, at the end of Ragnarok and all that stuff right it's like okay so what what, what are we going to make of this well if we if we're reading this from that perspective of like where does this end up in the hierarchy of seriousness right we're, we're going to be like okay this this is just like a tale for children or this isn't serious and this isn't meaningful and and, and so on but that's that's a very modern perspective on that type of literature um these type of stories right because if you start taking these this information seriously then you also realize that Snorri Sturluson's stories these stories about Thor fighting a giant somewhere uh, or the gods encountering an eagle somewhere, they have a bunch of really important information about how you actually survive in the North Atlantic environment. And that's, that's an incredibly important detail that is overlooked if we, if we treat mythology the way that we have usually treated mythology in the 19th and 20th century. Um, and so it, when we've, for instance, psychologized the material and talk about it as, as like as something that can, uh, you know, uh, tell us about the transition between um, child uh, or from child to adult. Um, yes, it can be useful for that. But considering it the primary tool, that's where it gets problematic, if you ask me. Um, and... Another thing is too that if we talk, if we think about Verlospau as a poem that could inform us on, you know, the psychology of a teenager or something like that, you 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 highlight it as things as uh, as promiscuity and uh, moral um, shadiness, right? <laughs> that's attached to the the gods. Well, that's that might be our perspective, but we don't know if that's that was their perspective, right? Um, we, when we look at the the, the poem as, as such, um, there are so many different processes that are happening and so many things that go into informing us about like the mind that created it, right? And the minds that have then reproduced it afterwards. Like keep in mind too that we're we're talking about uh, several centuries of of people adding to it, right? Mm-hmm. So we also have to like basically disband the idea of an author right um and this is where some of my colleagues for instance would then be like okay well that's too complex so i'm just going to to deal with the text that i have at hand and talk about that author right or the authorship of 1270 it's like okay cool you can do that um but uh you know that might not be the full story first of all and in my opinion it might also not be that interesting because we we want to know what those vikings thought right <laughs> I, I really like it, it's uh everything you just said i first of all i, I really enjoy because i i am very much on the campbell Jung bandwagon as a writer because i write historical fiction novels that structure is very useful to me because it's what gives any story today, mass market appeal, right? So it's, uh, but I look, but, but then coming back and saying, okay, well, we have to remember that Campbell and Jung are trying to, they're, they're looking at how are, how are these all the same versus Mm -hmm. you're looking at how is it different? 
And it's a, it's a very different way of looking at it. And, but then, as you mentioned, when you're looking at it as, as, you know, um, not oversimplifying it, there's so much more there. There's so much more substance, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's really cool. Thank, I, I appreciate that answer because that's got my, that's got the cogworks moving in my head. Where I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And, and yes, it, that's. I think that's an it, for me as a as a scholar and somebody who works with this material as something that could be useful, um, in in a in a broader way to restructure and rethink about who we are as human beings. Um, I I I feel like it's my duty essentially to to look at the material in that way, right? Um, and and see where does it overlap with other story worlds where does it not overlap where does where there's something incredibly specific going on here and 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 we have those details in in all kinds of tales from everywhere around the world right um and and you know if you if you think about it in the broader sort of like social uh, uh societal uh, context right you know if we devalue these cultural stories that people have produced either historically in a region in Europe or in a contemporary setting um, among populations uh, around the globe, right? We're also devaluating those human beings, right? We are, we're, we're, we're ignoring aspects of their existence, right? If we just like say, these are folk tales for children, or you know, turn turn Scandinavian trolls into like these um, dumpy, bumpy, bumpy, uh, silly creatures, right? When they're originally, they were spirits that these people th thought existed in trees and rocks and lakes and 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 waters and so on, and that said something very important about how they related to the world, right? So, so that that's the direction I want to go in uh, as somebody who's working with this on a scholarly level and also on a level that uh, um, is trying to reactualize this material for for the present, because you know I think we talked Terry a little bit about this uh, last time and we're we're in a situation nowadays and where the way that we live the way that we treat our world has brought us to a point where we could be facing catastrophe, right? And so if if we don't start thinking differently about our world, uh, then we will probably be barreling towards that catastrophe, right? And that will be our Ragnarok. Gosh, you bring up a, an interesting point. Uh, uh, and it just kind of, a little light bulb in my head went off, but uh, thinking about the ecological piece of this too, and how, Viking Age Scandinavia, I mean, they lived in a world of scarcity, absolute scarcity compared to, say, Western France, for example, right, which is very fertile, right? So that, I mean, you had a population bottleneck, you had resource uh, issues. So so how much of this, I mean, in, uh, in, yeah, I mean, how much of this are, could be an ecological warning for them that we could use today as a, as an, you know, kind of like, it's, we don't, we don't live in the same conditions, but then again, we kind of do, right? Like the planet's full, we're using all the resources, but they, you know, what wisdom could we glean from this, from them being back then in an ecologically difficult situation in Scandinavia. And then they had these stories to, to help themselves remember, right? Like, Hey, mm -hmm. we need to treat the resources around us with care because mm -hmm. that could, we could, very quickly kind of like what happened on uh, crete right yeah. the mycenaeans you know they 
used all the resources on the island and poof, they're gone, right? And yep. Scandinavia could have faced the same thing, I imagine, in certain ways. Um, and Iceland kind of did to an extent, right? Uh, at, at multiple stages. Uh, one thing that we know is that there used to be uh, a uh, population of walruses there. I don't know how much scholarship has been done on this, um, uh, how much research has been done on the role of the walrus hunt, the walrus industry in the North Atlantic when it comes to uh, migrations to Iceland. But I personally think that that is what brought Scandinavians there. Um, that they, you know, you have Norwegians uh, or populations along the Norwegian coast. I don't want to call them Norwegians at that point. They, they come Norwegians later on. Um, they're moving north, right? And then they're moving, moving into the Siberian area, hunting walrus. Because walrus brings ivory and, and the, 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 uh, the body itself, like the skin. Everything can be used. It's a very, very uh, important animal for existence and subsistence, right? But it, it becomes an industry. Um, so they're supplying uh, the European markets with ivory, right? And then when the, once they deplete their own resource in the north, and then they de deplete uh, the resources in the east, or they at least become more difficult to access for different reasons, um, they're going west, right? And then they deplete the resource in, in Iceland, then they go to Norway, uh, sorry, not Norway, Greenland, Um where they might be going further and further north to find walruses, right? I, I think that the walrus industry is actually a centerpiece for these North Atlantic migrations and the the, the societies that uh, that emerge there. Um, and then, of course, we have volcanic eruptions. We have the Elkia uh, eruption in the 930s, which uh, I have theorized in in my research. Um, is is part of the imagery that you get in Ragnarok, particularly those aspects where um, um, the stances where uh, Surtur, the fire giant, comes out of the ground and his flaming sword uh, shines brighter than the sun. Um, the the ground opens and uh, this is where we have witches, trolls flying around. Um, they, they come out of the ground. There's a lot of imagery right there that can be compared uh, uh, quite um, um, uh, closely with some of the aspects of the Elkjau eruption. That was very similar to the Lakagiga eruption in 1783. Um, you have these fire columns that are coming up and look like swords. Uh, they You have blocking out of the sun um, and and multiple other elements. One of the things that you find across the globe is a tendency to mythologize such uh, geological events, volcan volcanic events, um, put them into a social historical context in the uh, particular population that experiences it, and attribute the um, uh, different features that you're seeing uh, in such eruptions to the actions of anthropomorphic beings of some kind, whether the demons, gods, trolls, whatever. You can find that in Papua New Guinea. You can find it in the Pacific Northwest. You can find it in Ecuador. You can find it in uh, the Congo. You can find it in Scandinavia. You can find it across the planet, right? That is something that, uh, that we humans tend to do. Um, we have... 
other poetry in medieval Iceland that does that too, right? So my uh, my proposal for for those parts of Ragnarok where um, things really hit the fan, so to speak, uh, is that that's actually mirroring experiences of volcanic eruptions. And so there, right there, you have the encoding of environmental uh, knowledge and um, also a warning about ecological disaster right there in the poem. And you can find traces of that kind of stuff. Um, it's not just volcanoes. It's also about fish and ice and storms in all over this this material, the, the, the mythology, but also the saga material for that matter. Like the, there are hints about this everywhere. And um, there are also other scholars that have theorized about certain aspects of Verlospau as a poem. Um, Neil Price and uh, Bo Greslund um, from Sweden have theorized that uh, that part of the Ragnarok myth also hint at this uh, so-called dust veil events in 536 or 35 i can never remember 36 and uh, 36, 36 and again in 39 i think yeah because I, yeah. I was thinking that i was going to ask you about that because that's like ragnarok that happened like two years 200 years before the viking mm -hmm. age but the theory of this was some sort of you know generational memory of that because that was a cataclysmic worldwide kind of event you know an extinction event effectively yeah, I mean, we're seeing depopulation uh, in Scandinavia, right? right. Um, if I remember the numbers correctly, there are some locations where 70% of the population disappears, right? Um, probably because of migrations, right? They're, yeah. they're simply like leaving the area to uh, find better uh, better places. And, and, and it makes perfect sense. Um, if you have a massive volcanic eruption that creates a dust veil, across the globe, or at least the Northern Hemisphere, uh, crops in Scandinavia go into fail. Mm -hmm. we, we, I, I think we saw that with, um, what was that Indonesian uh, eruption in the uh, 19th century? Wasn't it in the 19th century? I'm fussy on the details here, but we saw that in Europe too, that the crops started failing because there was a volcanic eruption in Indonesia right. that uh, the little... jetted out of. Yeah, yeah, the Little Ice Age, I think, is in the mid 1700s, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up, but it was, yeah. We, yeah. we also have the Little Ice Age, right? Um, and uh, so, so the, the, these are, of course, you know, warning signs for us today, <laughs> uh, con considering like, oh, wait a minute, when something happens over here in this part of the globe, then, you know, that has an effect on uh, this part of the globe as well. I think actually the little ice age was brought on uh, by uh, the depopulation of North America. Um, I have seen some studies on uh, on that uh, where um, uh, environmental science uh, scientists have uh, proposed that um, the illnesses that precedes the European um, expansion inwards into the uh, North American continent, right, are um, uh, depopulating the Native American populations, right? And what that then causes is a, a more a tree growth across North America, and that includes a uh, temperature drop. 
So it, I, I, if I remember correctly, that, that's a theory that has been uh, proposed out there. Yeah, because I think the Little Ice Age, from my knowledge, is maybe roughly, say, 1500 to 1800. So it's some, somewhere around there. Um, it's also, I mean, some, some scholars assume that that is part of why um, it, it, the Scandinavian presence in Greenland fails. Um, I, I think it's multiple factors. One of the things, also the walrus hunt, essentially, at that point, they're they're going, they're basically traveling from like San Diego to uh, to Portland, <laughs> pretty much like a distance <laughs> uh, that far uh, to to hunt the sea mammals that they are interested in. Um, so so you know you also have sort of like what we would call an economic downturn for the for the area uh, for those settlements in in Greenland. And, and starving then, to death is not really fun. No, so like it's just more awesome to get on a ship and go back to Iceland, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Which we know some of them did at least. So I think that's that's part of it as well. But yeah, I mean, we did the material that we have um, uh, available to us from from these periods, and it also goes with those uh, rune poems I've translated. It actually tells us a lot about uh, environments and relationship to what we would call nature. Um, uh, these 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 people's ideas of their own presence in the world, essentially. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about the translations that um, that I've done of the rune poems, it, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to see how uh, first the, the runic letter system, right, is, you know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wearing it in honor of you today because. Of <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, Very honored. Um, just real quick on the little on the little ice age, I just I looked it up real quick. So this, yeah. I mean, it's this is not a simple small little subject. It's it's so there's 16th to 19th centuries is the conventionally defined time period, but then there's an alternate one from 1300 to 1850. Uh, okay, yeah. And then it talks about how like basically everywhere around the world experienced like cold spells during that time. But not no, uh, not all places experienced it at the same time. Mm, um, interesting. And then they have possible causes. Uh, so orbital cycles. So Earth's orbit around the sun having a slightly different cycle. Solar activity, uh, volcanic activity, like we talked about, ocean circulation. Uh, and then this is a really interesting one: decreased human populations, just like what you were talking about with the depopulation of North America. Uh, but they also say that that's it's partly also attached to the Black Death. Mongol invasions, um, mm -hmm. yeah, destruction of native populations and biomass in the Americas. So basically, human activity had saw a big decline because of these large, you know, because uh, let's see, the Black Death killed what two and three people, two out of three people in Western Europe, mm -hmm. and that would have been a very densely populated. So just essentially decreased human activity from, you know, the one, two, three punches of of Black Death depopulation of the Americas, and supposedly the Mongols killed a lot of people. I mean. Yeah, the, I mean, they, they they were rolling over a, a large territory, so that makes sense. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, we we think about the 20th century and we think about the atrocities that we committed, you know, like in the in the 20th century, they're all terrible. But like, you know, you you sit all the bad guys from the 20th century, Stalin, Hitler, all those guys, kind of in the same room, and you bring in Genghis Khan, and they're just like, how many people did you kill? All these people, and then Genghis Khan goes, I caused an ice age. 
yeah. and simultaneously repopulating the, the world. I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, <laughs> there's a lot of people who descend from that guy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one in eight people on Earth or something like that. I might be wrong. I'd have to look it up, but it was so, it was some huge number like that, like one in eight people are descended from Genghis Khan. Okay, oh, so wow. I have I have, a, I have a question then related to this, and this is like I'm mindful just because obviously we're talking to you about your your poem translation, but also so this very week, like yesterday and the day before, the two classes I'm teaching, Monday European history from 1300 to 1800, and then yesterday the Viking Age. Yesterday just happened to be my segment on the the pre the pagan period, uh, and um, but yet Monday included the scientific revolution. Right. And so it's interesting to me to just sort of think about, I mean, all the things that we're just talking about here, like ice ages and climate change and volcanic eruptions and all this stuff that now we would clearly sort of put and or keep track of, et cetera, et cetera, in the realm of science. Right. That's how we understand the world and what those changes are. And calculus is invented, you know, by a Newton to talk about change over time, blah, blah, blah. And yet it sounds to me, like you are, and and not only just here, but I, you know, I listen to your podcast and you know, read read your other books and stuff like that. That you are arguing for a return to this story world as a way to understand what these things are and how we may be able to deal with them. Is that right? And then, like, if that's right, how do we do that? You know, how do you unring the bell? We live in this scientific world that it feels like we can't really sort of then, you know sort of you know it would be anathema right to like science people to be like no we don't want to go back to the middle ages why would we do that that's not progress so how how do you sort of sit with that kind of that kind of thinking um so i mean a couple of things personally i would love to go back to the medieval age maybe not so much the medieval period but if you if you think about a quality of life until you like die at 35 of course um <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that there's there's something to be said for uh you know <laughs> living in 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 previous eras maybe not so much the middle ages as uh, you know uh, earlier um and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to be like what uh when I say that but <laughs> you know what um it, it, the 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 way that we've organized life and existence um in 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 these modern societies that have emerged from, you know, the interaction between Western Europe and um, and Eastern uh, North America, when uh, Europeans started creating societies uh, there, and then what we call the West today, essentially, uh, it has not, you know, in my opinion, really uh, brought that much good ultimately um that's of course you know a very big conversation but that let me just uh, cut it down to that and like what we got is not awesome guys it's just not <laughs> uh we could do much better now uh the question is like how do we do much better uh where do we go from here well one of the the problems that we have created and one of the reasons that we're not doing a lot better here uh, even though that we uh, beguile ourselves to think that we do because like we can you know extend life to 110 or something like that 
right? And it's like, oh, that's a great example of how great we're doing. It was like people used to die like flies back in the uh, the day, but now we can all, you know, live forever, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, sure, but how are we living while we are living forever? And that that's that's where you know, this all comes in for me. Um, so uh, one of the problems that we created is this compartmentalization of, you know, there's something called science, there's something called this, there's something called that, and so on. And first and foremost, what we have to realize that that is a lie that we tell ourselves. And how do we know that that is a lie that we tell ourselves? Well, uh, just look at the recent laws or, uh, you know, judicial decisions that are being made, for instance, in this country about abortions and embryos and, uh, you know, uh, trans people, right? Like the, the, those, that does not follow science. <laughs> like that follows people's beliefs, right? So, so we're not in a situation where science rules or science governs our way of thinking. It might be for some. And then, you know, for those people, then they would also realize that it's not really like sometimes we, we employ uh, scientific argumentation for something. And in other cases, we don't. Let's look at the uh, pandemic, right? <laughs> There's so many choices that were made during the pandemic that uh, were maybe based in science, but then, uh, you know, also uh, converged with fear, right? And it's from the scientific perspective, you're not supposed to be fearful. So, 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 so we humans are complex and we're not capable of separating these things, right? This is not a commentary on politics and it's not a commentary on what, what happened during the pandemic and so on. I'm just making the observation that we're not capable of separating these things. And uh, we, are, uh, we have an emotional repertoire, some, some, some deeply ingrained ways of, of reacting uh, to our existence, right? And they are the primary responses. And that's 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 like all emotion. And what do we see in these story worlds? Well, we see that they, you know, in so many ways, uh, help us process emotion. Mm -hmm. They help us relate to our emotions. And they also help us remember, right? Because, you know, a, a society in, in, in Scandinavia in the 500s didn't have the capacity to systematically remember, right? So what it did, uh, what people did was that they would tell stories that were significant right, to their existence. And so if you have an event like the Dust Veil event where crops are failing, you will tell stories about that in different ways. And you will do it in a language that's 1,500 years old, which means that for us, Looking at that today, looking at those carvings on rocks that you know seem to represent some kind of failing sun, that kind of stuff, we we can only we can we can only go so far in terms of understanding exactly what they're trying to express. But we can see some bits and pieces here and there, right? Those are the stories that they will be telling, and those stories will then change, modify, and uh, get new contexts as well in the future. And at some point, we will have forgotten that that was, you know, a dust veil event that caused our crops to fail. And then we might enter a situation of telling eschatological stories instead that then become, you know, socially relevant, like you, for instance, see with Christian mythology, right? The apocalyptic stories that you can find in the Bible 
I haven't done a lot of research on that at all, but I, I would say, I, I would bet that, you know, in 85% of those cases, what we're talking about here are geological events or some other ecological failures that happened at some point in those cultures that recorded those stories, right? And then, boom, now we're in a situation where you have some megachurch preacher who is, you know, putting all of that stuff into a social context that we are supposed to relate to in on an internal basis um, when it was, in fact, something that was important to a population that existed some time ago in on another spot on the planet. And that that's that's how these stories seem to modify, if, if you ask me. And when they gain a certain... Um, certain social uh, context or attraction that's when they're then taken out of their original context and then become something entirely different um so so, so we as as human beings um if we want to know ourselves if we want to understand what we're doing on the planet we we need to return to to a pre-industrialized thinking and um uh, the, what I'm seeing out there when it comes to scholarship is that indigenous scholars are the ones who are systematically and methodically working on presenting what is that pre-industrialized thinking, like what is the, what is actually present out there, um, and how how can that be um, meaningful and uh, and useful today? So. That's that's sort of you know a much broader uh, context than just uh, whatever research that I do. That's um... <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, because what I hear you saying, and this is stuff that I mean, there's so much much overlap. Um, so like, why I'm drawn to you and your scholarship is like, well, I used to teach uh, European history from the like you know 1800 to the fall of the Berlin Wall, and like the first thing is Industrial Revolution, and like my first lecture is like, okay, I'm a medievalist by training. I'm going to tell you right now, I think what happened with the Industrial Revolution like irrevocably ruined us as human beings. <laughs> and almost nothing good has come from it since. <laughs> um, but what I hear you saying is that, um, God, I talk with my husband about this all the time because we're just so hammered in the media with fear and we've got to solve climate change, for instance, and, and so on. And I, I keep saying to him, look, we're not in that space. We, we have, have deluded ourselves, in my opinion, into thinking we're in that space that somehow we can solve this problem, quote unquote. I said, we're past that. If that ever was a thing, we, we, we just need to be coping and st maybe stopping it from getting worse. But, you know, to me, it sounds like you're saying that the stories are there. Um, you know, like, what do they say? Like history is to human beings as memory is to an individual, right? I mean, we need to remember. And so the stories help us remember, but the stories also help us cope. They don't necessarily help us solve and make something go away. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I would definitely say so. You can approach this in so many different ways, I would say. Um, I, I, I mean, I know people who, for instance, are are out there uh, thinking that uh, we can solve it, right? And uh, you know, that's also the sense that you get from you know the media and political platforms that are highlighting uh, climate change as as you know a component of their politics, right? You also have those who are you know simply denying it, right? Um, I, and and I think 
you know those those who are out there saying that well, we we can solve this they are again perhaps selling us on um if nothing else a misunderstanding <laughs> because we can't just solve it right. that's not how it works <laughs> yeah um what we can do is that we can recognize as human beings we have an effect on our world right and uh, that goes from the individual to the mass of humans that exist, right? And my presence out here in the world uh, is affecting, um, for instance, the trees and bushes and rocks and uh, plants and animals that are around me in different ways, right? And, you know, that that effect is there when I am just like standing next to a tree uh, compared to when I'm chopping it down, right? That there's, there's still going to be some kind of effect, right? So if I walk around in my world and consider myself in a uh, relationship with all of these things that are around me, uh, from humans to animals to to a, what we call inanimate objects and so on, um, then I am also walking around in the world with a different mentality about what it means to be a human being. And that's what's important here because we forgot about that. And then if you go back to uh, Berlusbau or the rune poems, you'll see that that idea is actually present there, that that that, that there is there is a consciousness about me as a human being and my relationship to the rest of the world in different ways. Uh, have you ever noticed how much they talk about bonds? Bonds and chains, they refer to the gods as bonds and chains. What is that? Well, it, it is because these people knew that there are these bonds and, uh, and, and strings going from one individual to another individual, from, 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 from the uh, single human being to all of creation. This is something that is present in the material. and You can, you can j just go read it, right? <laughs> Uh, but that's one of the things that we have sort of like in our scholarship, um, uh, going back to the conversation that we had before about like, uh, you know, psychological approaches or other approaches for that matter in the 20th century, that we've forgotten about those, uh, those ways of thinking in the material. We've overlooked them. Most of us, most scholars uh, haven't even cared about them really, right? Um, because they entered the industrialized way of thinking. Where, um, you know, all of a sudden this material became much more relevant to uh, constructions of nationalism or uh, self-conceptions of, uh, as you know, uh, like Sigurd and Nordahl, um, great Icelandic uh, scholar, um, but also, uh, you know, <laughs> of, on a quest to sort of like prove how uh, Icelanders have always had a modernistic way of thinking, right? And this is why you have this idea nowadays that like the sagas of Iceland is just sort of like matter of fact and just reporting and just telling you about the life. And it's like, ignore the troll over here, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> ignore ignore that this guy just got his leg chopped off and it's like now, now you know, placed it on a stump uh, like a tree stump and it's now giving you a poem like all of this like stuff that we would consider fiction ignore that this is like just matter of fact reporting of like historical events <laughs> right hang that's on what i'm gonna go put out some butter for the elves <laughs> <laughs> right that's that's the kind of uh, those are the kind of perspectives that you get on this literature right 
in the early uh, to mid uh, to even you know getting into the seventies, like early early to mid twentieth uh, century, seventies um, eighties, still there, right? And then it so slowly starts changing, and different scholars are like, ah, is that really how we want to <laughs> want to classify this material, right? And 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 we shouldn't classify it that way because the people who wrote it down did not separate in those categories either right they didn't separate in like ideas of like um uh, science and religion and social interactions or you know whatever and even that's if something it isn't that we've just, done like yeah even if it isn't just various categories like those that you just said and when we're, i was talking with my students about just this this binary thinking right oh it's either this or if not it must be this and that's it right. right black or white right or wrong I mean we do that all the time as human beings and I understand you know there's probably some sort of biological survival mechanism for that is that thing going to kill me or not you know what do I what do I need to do here um but the vast majority of reality happens in the gray middle I always say you know so it's like you have to get comfortable with sitting with that kind of um you know where the messy bits are because that's that's where life is it's yeah. not always it's not always so simple but i do think that there is um you know we're compelled probably yeah for some sort of survival mechanism to try to be sure right mm -hmm. about about things so but we can't stop trying to to do that and let ourselves just sit with the I think it's probably why like a lot of people maybe have difficulty meditating and things like that. It's just very difficult to just sort of sit there with something. Um, oh, and... with nothing, right? Yeah, nothing. exactly. Oh, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. Well, that's the, I think that's the, but the, to, to me, and I'll just speak for myself in terms of when I engage with the material, such as the, how, how do you pronounce, I call it the Veluspa. I know I'm selling it, but it's a Velus. Veluspal. <laughs> Veluspal. Uh, that's Veluspa, sort of like the ice. But... Yeah. Venus That's the Icelandic so, uh, pronunciation. Okay. Um, so, so anyway, when I engage yeah. with it, so what I, what I, what I see is, is um, th it's the inevitability of the change that's coming. And then you see the, just the, the effort that Odin goes through to try and figure this out, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen no matter what, but he desperately wants to figure something out, right? And I think that's the, to me, I see that as an echo of, of this human um, struggle that we have internally between what can I do to, what can I do versus what happens to me, mm -hmm. right? And um, and I think that to the the modern ecological thing where, you know, we people saying, you know, oh, climate change is this thing that, you know, we can fix it, we can fix it it's like they want us to go back to a time and place that never existed because, you know, humans have been affecting, I mean, you go back to Roman times. I, I was thinking about this when I was in France, how cultivated everything is in the countryside. And I thought, what would this have looked like in, in Roman time? Probably quite similar, just without the roads, mm. right? Because you had what, tw uh, between 20 and 30 million people in what is now France that were under, and they had to cultivate for that. So yeah, you, you think about it that way, um, you know, there, there isn't, like an ecological paradise that we can go back to to stop climate change. And then of course the inevitability that something's going to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I took a, I took a class back in uh, for my master's degree is a literature and ecology class uh, or literature in the environment. And we read, you know, Thoreau and uh, was it silent spring. Um, mm -hmm. And, and all those, all those works are very meaningful and impactful, 
but they really do talk about like how things are changing we're destroying the you know the world around us and there are warnings there and we need to heed them um but there's also kind of this idea of like let's try to get it back to how it was you know and you can't you, you really can't do that and at the end of the class I got myself into a little bit of trouble with some of the other students in the class because they were like rah rah environment go back to you know living on a commune and no environmental impact and we want to go back to whatever bygone Pleistocene age humans came up in or whatever and <laughs> and and at the end I just said what if what if this you know challenges how we change for the better humans don't do well when we're not challenged and we need something to like push us to the next level and what if the next level is because if you consider the history of the planet, how many extinction events have we had? You know, mass extinction, five, six. I, I always forget. It's somewhere in there. Five, yes. So every iteration of, of environment has been wiped out because the universe is trying to kill us. And so mm -hmm. I, th I, I, you know, I just said, what if, what if the next step for us is to be challenged by this ecological disaster, which then forces us not to go back to some kind of fix it and everything's fine, but to develop our own artificial ecology that allows us to remove ourselves from the natural order and on to the next thing for us. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, and, and when I proposed that it was just, you know, boy, I got, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the tomatoes and the relish, radishes, you know, just, <laughs> ah, uh, no, we need the planet that we need. We want to save the planet as it is today. And it's like, but even as a human being, like I'm not the person I was when I was 18. Like mm -hmm. everything is kind of there's, there's just march forward so and I, I see that i see that in the in the mythology i you can tell me if i'm totally off but i just see that in the mythology is like that the inevitability of this relentless march forward and kind of this by the end even the gods have to accept that mm -hmm. they're not really in control mm -hmm. right and that they just have to basically deal with it <laughs> yeah no i i think you're actually quite right um so this idea of going back to something like what is, what are we going back to like a, a fixed moment in time when when things looked exactly like this um where does that come from i mean it, it comes from the the story of the garden of eden right mm -hmm. going back to the garden of eden <laughs> you think about the uh, origin of the environmentalist movement, right? Um, and and this idea of pristine wilderness, right? That that that's that's where that all that thinking comes from. Um, and then you also have to consider that it's like, steeped in racism and the appropriation of indigenous lands and you know genocide and so on. Um, that that's another part of the the origin of the environmentalist movement. Um, so no, we, we can't go back and we shouldn't be talking about going back. We should be talking about, um, what is there now and what is our relationship to that as human beings, right? Well, how do we relate to, and, and, you know, that there's, for instance, when it comes to such things as climate change and, uh, environmental change, there's re in recent years, we've gotten this term, like what is it, climate grief or something like that, where people are grieving um, the destruction of environments and uh, the, the change in the climates and so on. And that's despair, right? Despair doesn't fix anything. We, we're, not, we're, not going to, we're not going to change anything by, by, by grieving the loss. I mean, you can have a, perhaps a grieving process, 
Um, but you should get out of it at some point and then you should not end up in, in that corner of despair. Now, you know, what are some proposed solutions to all of this, you know, colonies on Mars or colonizing the oceans and living in like uh, glass bubbles in the ocean? I, I don't know. Uh, sound pretty darn stupid to me <laughs> for so many reasons, um, especially if, if colonizing Mars means, you know, uh, as Elon Musk proposed, that the people who can't afford the ticket work it off <laughs> in the colony in Mars. It's like, okay, yeah, you reinvented slavery. Great. Um, yeah, indentured servitude. Awesome. Hey, that's how yep. America got its start. Why wouldn't we do it again? <laughs> right. Yeah, that was that was a great idea. <laughs> Actually, um, one of our one of our previous guests, um, Dan Carlin, who's a history podcaster, he he has a an old podcast called Addicted to Bondage, and it's about humans and their relationship to slavery. And he has a thought experiment in that podcast to just say, look, because the, the central question of the of the whole podcast is like, is that just sort of part of who we are as humans that we just, we do that to other humans? And he said, what if we go, I think he used the moon and not Mars, but like, what if we just sort of like hit the reset button, go colonize some other place, basically starting from scratch, how long will it take before some humans are enslaving other humans? It was like, it was just a question of like, it's inevitable. This is just mm -hmm. what we're like, oh, I mean, as as long as there is that uh, that that quest for you know uh, uh, hoarding resources, right? Because right? that's that's what it's all about, right? Right. Um, it, it, some at some point in in human history, one human realized that if if that human could em employ multiple hands to gather foods only for itself. Yeah. then then it would be able to hoard a lot of resources and you know that in itself is also sort of a, uh, a response to resource scarcity right if you if if you have a storage of 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 nuts uh and berries right then then you can weather whatever will come uh, better than those you forced to to collect them right um so yeah but i mean ultimately what we're, what we're of course, what we should be considering is, um, well, what is what is everything going to look like in the future? Right? And that's where I think it's important to take lessons from the past. Um, because the past had good um, uh, solutions, good uh, answers to um, how you deal with the future. And what we have entered um, is a cultural mode of forgetting this 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 culture is is just a constantly reproducing amnesia and i see that as an educator when you know when i when i try to make references for, to historical events or culture or pop culture whatever that existed just 10 15 20 years ago none of my Blanks students there. know what i'm talking about yeah right <laughs> yeah um isn't that and, also isn't that also part of Ragnarok is afterwards, like there's like two people left and they're on a green little island and they just have total amnesia about everything that just happened. And they're like, no, no, they remember. No, oh, they, they remember. Well, but maybe their kids won't remember something. I just, you know, they start off like just kind of brand new, fresh. And like, it's almost like everything that came before doesn't really matter anymore. And you kind of get the sense that it's just like, like you can't, I, I don't know. The first time I engaged with it, I, I came away with the sense of like, it's just going to happen again. So what, right. yeah, and it might, 
And I, I think that might be a cycle that we exist in. But what you have to remember is that the two brothers who caused all of this, right. Balder and Höder, they meet yeah. at the, the Plains of Eternity. <laughs> and there they find the golden uh, tablets uh, of the, <laughs> the past. Right. And the gaming so, pieces, right? And uh, the, yeah, so some call them gaming pieces, some call them tablets. Uh, what, wait, are whatever you, they are you saying are. John Smith got it right? The Mormons are no, <laughs> the golden tablets. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first thing they do, right? It's like they remember their past, and then the, it's from the past upon which they can build a new future, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's my interpretation yeah. of it. That's yeah. that's my interpretation as well. They sit down, they remember, and they talk about what went wrong, and then they 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 try to fix it all, right? Um, and you know there there are some some aspects of of the poem that I have left out because you know this isn't a scholarly interpretation. I'm 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 a scholar interpreting this, but this is a, this is sort of like my retelling here um of of the poem so for instance that uh, last bit with the dragon that uh, they see in the distance and all that stuff i'm like yeah we don't need that uh, we we can have a moment of bliss at the end just for a little I, while actually <laughs> I, have, I have to say when i was reading it um in um and i and i did what you said which is i think is a, an amazing thing as far as like what we were talking about earlier of so trying to understand things in the context of when they really originally were uh, is to read it out loud even if you're alone um but then you get to the part and i don't know if this is i'm, I'm hoping this was intentional and you have some like great artistic staff or whatever but that page that's the end like i said earlier right the fade to black and you know what's coming 57 stands up 56 and then 57 uh-oh pages turn white mm -hmm. and it's like ah here we are now into a new thing and i was like damn that's brilliant <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's the that's the brilliant setup of uh of my editor um uh joseph uh, uh who is out by you guys uh well a little north up in olympia um yeah he uh he had a plan <laughs> yeah because actually that was the other thing too i was going to ask you because he wrote uh hopkins right is it he wrote mm -hmm. a little uh introduction about this volume and he says that it contains your voice and so i was going to ask you what he, what you think he means by that well, that is exciting that, that this is my interpretation. So it's, you know, it, this is not a scholarly edition that uh, that you want to necessarily use in your class, because then you would have to like explain why, uh, why have certain bits been left out or um, that kind of stuff, right? And, and when you're, for instance, teaching, you want the full version of the text, right, with all the complexities. I've reduced it a little bit in that sense because i want to present that uh worldview that i've just been talking about actually mm -hmm. <laughs> um uh, that we inadvertently got into uh, talking about in terms of like re reusing uh this material uh for something meaningful today right and so that's that's the the version of the poem that i presented because it is a living text right um, it is it is a text that was possibly composed in the late 900s and then was used and reused by people uh, orally retold maybe in 
you know, ritual settings, maybe not, maybe just for entertainment, who knows. Then it was written down. It was used by an Icelandic scholar that wanted to tell his version of the Nordic story world, right? Snorri Sturluson, when he's telling Edda, that is his version, right? And by the way, we don't even have his original. We only have like four different versions <laughs> that were written, uh, that were copied later on, right? So that's actually the versions of those authors, uh, whoever they were. And I know some of my uh, uh, colleagues would probably uh, burn me at the stake for calling them authors. I should call them scribes or writers instead. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that you can necessarily... Uh, detest them from some level of authorship as well. And then you have like multiple translations uh, from, you know, then on. Um, again and again, Scandinavians and non-Scandinavians have been uh, translating this material. So, like, you know, going back to our, our ideas of science, right? We, we, we want to present sort of like the, the, the most accurate scientific version of the text. But that never existed. Right. Like, <laughs> so, uh, so, so this is a, in that sense, a retelling. Right? This is a continuation of, of that process of, of retelling the stories um, as we should sure. too, right? Because retelling the old stories is also a way to create consistency between generations, right? And if we're in a period now where we're losing that because, you know, the culture that we exist in and the cultural products that we engage with are constantly changing, right? Um, well, then there needs to be um, somebody out there who's, who's trying to, you know, <laughs> carry that torch onwards. <laughs> Yeah, we we have <clears throat> excuse me. Sometimes <clears throat> have devised um, this question, the uh, what I call the existential question, right, CJ, that we've asked some of the scholars on the program about. You know, we have very interesting discussions about. You know, we're interested in the the history of the Viking Age and stuff, and CJ writes books about it, and I teach about it, and all that, and we we we're just sort of you know geeky historians who find it interesting in its own right. But then again, you go, okay, but you know, like these people lived 1200 years ago, like, <laughs> excuse me, like why, why does this matter? You know, kind of thing, you know, so it's, and, and we've had some interesting uh, responses to that, I think about why we should continue to sort of care about this history or whatever. But I mean, I don't know, Matthias, I think you kind of knock it out of the park here as far as, you know, <laughs> making a connection to like why we should not forget basically. Well, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think we need to ask that question. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> the, entire, the entire podcast. Uh, so just back to your book real quick. So it does say on the back cover, second edition limited to 600 copies. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said they're already sold out. Yeah. So how do we, how do we pitch you? How do we sell you? What, what <laughs> would you like our, our listeners to know what kind of action can they take to engage with your work? Well, I, there there are going to be more uh, um, copies printed soon. Um, the uh, uh, we so 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 Hildur, the the, the publisher um, that I was actually part of starting, um, is sort of like a, a a you know independent boutique kind of publisher. Mm -hmm. um, all, all materials are, are, are published uh, on as uh, environmentally uh, safe and appropriate material as possible. 
um out there um and uh the 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 whole the whole concept is is to publish these zines and that means then that the um you know we're building up equity by by publishing small batches of scenes first and then come a, you know greater collection of um bigger books and so on later on um and this is uh, for instance because as you can see these these editions are full of art for instance mm -hmm. and uh, the whole purpose is uh, also a fair sharing of um, the profits. Um, so, you know, authors get uh, a nice uh, high percentage uh, of royalties and uh, the artists that deliver the art also get paid well. So, um, you know, it's in that sense, uh, what, what Hildir is doing, uh, and I, I'm not part of like the... Uh, if I don't... I don't have ownership in, in Hildir any longer. Um, as I said, I was part of starting it, but then uh, sort of retreated from, from that position uh, later on. Uh, the, the whole purpose is, is to, uh, you know, reintroduce a little bit of fairness into uh, uh, publishing because um, I don't know if you are aware, but uh, publishers don't, don't pay their authors a lot, <laughs> if at that's all. Why, that's why I fired mine and I self-published and I uh, sold all my own books. And now and publishers offer me deals all the time, but I'm like, I'm doing fine without you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only one I have is uh, my audiobooks are, are public. I was like, I just, I'm not even going to touch that. So uh, Tantor Media has those. But yeah, it's it's you, when you look at those royalty splits, and you're like, oh, that's just, that's rough. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, at this point, you're just wondering why? Why am I doing that? <laughs> well, I'm a marketing guy, and I can market my books better than any publisher. So I was like, I'll just do it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, David Zori, who we uh, talked to last week, um, uh, he's uh, you know published his his new book on the Viking Age, and um, it's called Age of Wolf and Wind. Um, mm -hmm. And so I actually linked to this in our description of that podcast. So hopefully like driving a bunch of people to Hilder. But when I sent him a copy um, and that was the first thing he said to me when he got it was that the illustrations are beautiful. So mm -hmm. yeah, kudos to the artists as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, we have some really great artists. And, and that's another thing too, you know, uh, there isn't a lot of, you know, Nordic stuff that has been published recently with cool illustrations and cool art like that i mean you have to you have to go back a century or more to find you know that kind of stuff right Kelm scott press man william yeah. morris type stuff i think exactly right. and william morris is a huge inspiration for, for what he'll do is doing so yeah and look at that you have that don't you on you is that uh, your... yeah the yeah. uh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is also uh, the logo that Hulu is using. And I don't know yeah. if you can see this. Yeah, cup. yeah. This is, oh, that's nice. Actually, yeah, it's uh, cool. Um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well. Well, this was a wonderful conversation. I, uh, I love conversations that uh, challenge my thinking and get me get me looking at things in the, from different perspectives. This was great. I I had a had a good time. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I I really enjoyed it as well. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. I'm always game. Cool. <laughs>